Hello and welcome. This is where we recap each week's lesson of our women's Bible study class. This semester, we are in the book of Hebrews, and I am so glad you're with us. Let's get started. Hi, welcome back. It's now week six of our study in Hebrews, and today we get to launch into chapter three. Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about what benefit we receive because of Christ's humanity. And in fact, that's something that we shouldn't look at as making Jesus, the man, um, less than what he was. His humanity is something that we should be extremely grateful for. You know, his his um, humanity accomplished three things for us, according to last week's lesson. One, he was able to be the second Adam and perfectly uh, live so that he can have that dominion over all the thing that was kind of foreshadowed in some of those psalms that we read from last week. You know, he's able to come in and perfectly fulfill that role um, because of his life as a human. And now he is in front of the father as our advocate. He's unashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters. Do you remember that? Um, you know, he was able to live and he experienced temptation. He experienced hardship and uh, pain. And he had a very, a very physical life. He understands the things that we're going through. Our author in Hebrews spent a lot of time talking about how he is our brother and we have those shared experiences. So we're able to come to him, and bring our junk and not be ashamed by what we're bringing him because we know he he understands and he's been um, sympathetic to that. And then he also talked about that because Jesus was a human, he is able to be our merciful and faithful high priest. And that was kind of the last thing that he brought up in, in chapter two. Um, but we did not spend a lot of time talking about that last week. I remember asking you to kind of refresh your memory on what the role of a high priest was. And we went through a little bit of that, but then we just kind of left it. There's a lot that you can glean from Jesus being our high priest, but I did not want to go into that last week because honestly, the next several chapters in the book of Hebrews are going to further flush that out for us. And we're going to start jumping into that a little bit today. So today we are covering all of chapter three. We're going to move kind of quickly, but um, hopefully you'll begin to see where our author is going with, with giving us Jesus as our high priest. So I want to start, let's just go ahead and read chapter 3, verse 1. Um, it says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And I just want to stop here at verse 1 before I move on, because there's a few things that I want to make sure we're, we're getting before we jump in anymore. First of all, we have a therefore, right? So you always, every time we see a therefore or a since then or things like that, we need to stop and make sure we're grasping what ideas our author is connecting. And so in this case, our author has just finished wrapping up all the things we get because of Jesus's humanity, specifically our merciful and faithful high priest. He's able to help those of us who are being tempted. That's what he just finished saying. He's like, so because of that, you holy brothers, 
who share in that heavenly calling. And he's referring there back to earlier in the letter when he said that Jesus was bringing many sons to glory. That's that heavenly calling he's talking about here. He's like, consider Jesus. And that word consider right there, it's not the kind of consider that we think of when we're like, oh, I'm considering what to have for dinner. And you're just thinking about various options. And it's just kind of going on in the back of your mind. That's not what he's saying here. This word that he says for consider, it means to really fix your mind on something. It's the kind of thought you would give if you're considering a drastic move across the country where you you think about it nonstop and you're looking at it from every possible angle. How is this going to affect your life? It's just that all-consuming thought in your head. That's what he's talking about here, to wholly fix your mind on Jesus And he gives two titles for him, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. So I don't know um, if you're familiar with the word apostle or not, but, you know, when we hear that word apostle in scripture, a lot of times as Christians, we'll think of, okay, well, there were 12 apostles. You know, we, we have this very specific group of people that we think of with that word apostle. Well, then remember, oh yeah, Paul was an apostle. He considers himself in that group of 12. And so to hear Jesus referred to as an apostle might cause some of us to kind of stop and think, what are we talking about here? Jesus was not an apostle. But at the most elementary level, that word apostle, it just, it's, it's a messenger or an ambassador of someone. So was Jesus an apostle in that sense? And the answer is absolutely. He was, remember, the final messenger of God. You know, when earlier in chapter one, the author had spent a lot of time comparing Jesus to prophet, priest, kings, and angels. Remember, he's talking about he's better than all of these different types of messengers. So this is just another word that he's throwing in here. An apostle is an ambassador, a representative of somebody else bringing a message to another group. So he is the Lord's ambassador or messenger to us. But remember, he's also our representative in front of the Father right now. And so in a sense, he's he's our ambassador there. He's And that's also that idea of him being the high priest. He's that intermediary figure between the Father and us. And so he's the high priest of our confession. Let's move on now. And we're, I'm just going to read verses two through six right now, because this is all one thought that our author is giving us. So he's saying, consider Jesus, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confession, I'm sorry, our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Okay, so we're going to stop here because in your homework, I wanted you to read um, verses one through six and then see if you could summarize it. Um, Because this is a passage that um, is, 
has a lot of meat on these bones, okay? So you could kind of get lost in everything that's going on here. So this um, ability to summarize sections like this will help you in your own understanding, but then also able to communicate the meaning, right? So for me, my summary was that Jesus is worthy of more honor and glory than even Moses. Because as great as Moses was, he was a house servant, whereas Jesus is the owner of the house. I hope you were able to um, successfully kind of whittle down this message into something a little more succinct, but I also want us to be able to dive in and pull out some of these things. First thing, um, we have the, the idea of a house being repeated seven times here. This is a, a, a word that you heard over and over in these six verses. So we need to see if we can identify what, what he's talking about when he's talking about a house. We also need to look at why the author switched from comparing Jesus to broad categories of like angels, just broadly angels. He said Jesus is a high priest. That's a big category that included a lot of different people. Um, so he's been speaking very broadly about things that Jesus is better, but here he gets very specific and he's saying Jesus is better than even Moses. So we have that switch from broad to specific and then we have this idea of a house that we need to figure out. So let's tackle why he's he's comparing Jesus to Moses right here first. You know, Moses was the most revered man in Judaism. He was their deliverer, their prophet who brought the law. He's the one that guided them through the wilderness. Moses was it. Okay? You did not touch Moses. He was given so much honor among the Jews. But I don't know if we've ever considered that Moses was a priest. You know, when I know when I was taught the stories of the Exodus, you know, the first high priest was was Aaron. That that's where that came from. But was Moses a priest? I always considered him a prophet and he was a leader, but this idea of him as a priest never never really permeated my childhood lessons very well. But if you look in Psalm 99, all right, in Psalm 99, verse 6, it says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. And that's clearly referring to the Lord, right? His priest is God's priest. So scripture considers that Moses was a priest, not the high priest, right? But he was a priest. So our author is saying, Consider the best priest you can think of, and that would be Moses. Jesus is better than this particular one as well. The person that you're giving as much glory and honor to, Jesus deserves more. So <clears throat> there's a lot of places we could go to look at why this is, but I want to point your attention to Numbers chapter 12. In Numbers chapter 12, we see Miriam and Aaron, they are beginning to oppose Moses. They're not approving of some of the decisions that he's made, most recently being the marriage uh, to a Cushite woman. And so they begin grumbling about him. And in Numbers chapter 12, starting in verse 6, we see the Lord kind of take control of the situation. And so as they've been grumbling, it says, suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, he says, come out you three to the tent of meeting. And, you know, every time I read this story in my head, I think about 
God, this is just like when like you're the parent and you've got a bunch of kids that you're managing and you just have a few that are kind of ruining it for everybody. And you're like, you three outside now, let's go talk. You know, I see this is what's happening where the Lord is saying, we're going to handle this right now, face to face. We're knocking this, nipping this in the bud. And so in verse six, the, the scripture says, and he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. So you see here how much distinction God himself gives Moses. The honor that Moses receives from the Jewish people is warranted. He was different. He was set apart. He was the one that had the shining face, right? He was the one up on top of the mountain when he received the law. And just as the Lord says here, he speaks to the Lord mouth to mouth clearly. So there was nothing wrong in the honor given to him. However... The author here wants to point out he can't usurp the honor and glory that Jesus is due. You know, when compared to Jesus, Moses is considered a servant in the house, whereas Jesus in this passage is considered the son or the master over the house. Moses was never called a son, always the servant. All right. And you think about the, the other time that we see Jesus and Moses kind of pitted right next to each other like this happens at the transfiguration. You can find that in Mark chapter 9. If you look in Mark 9 verses, um, let's see, let's go 2 through 8. It says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Wouldn't it be great to know what they were talking about? I have always wondered, what what do Jesus and Elijah and Moses talk about? It says, uh, continuing on, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So that's the only other time that we see Jesus and Moses put together so closely, just like what the author of Hebrews is doing here. And it's very clear in that account of the transfiguration, that Jesus is the one we are to look at. Jesus is the one who is due all honor and all glory. And so our author in Hebrews, now that he's made this clear, that Jesus is better than even Moses, you know, our, um, our original audience, they're going to hear that and they're going to start bristling because, I mean, that just did not happen. But he's making a point here that you have to consider that as a servant, Moses fulfilled his job. But when it comes to who gets the glory of the house, that, that would be the builder of the house, right? 
that would be the one who, um, the one who brought it into being. And that is Jesus in this case. So let's talk about this house that he's over. You know, this, this word house was repeated seven times in this passage. So this is a big idea. What is the house that he's talking about? To our original audience, the house of God, that's the temple, right? You, you could be the temple, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, and they're going to have these very physical things come to their mind when they consider the house of God. But if you recall, back when we studied the, the covenant that God made with David, all right, we find that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you know, David was wanting to build a house for God, wanting to build the temple. And God came to him, if you recall, and said, no, uh, you're not going to be the one to do that. But, you know, I like your heart, basically. I'm going to build a house for you. And what he's talking about there is not another palace. It's not another physical structure for David. He's talking about a dynasty, right? He's talking about, uh, you know, people to sit on the throne forever. He's specifically talking about Jesus is going to come and he's going to have a kingdom that lasts forever, but he will be from David. But in any way that you look at that, he's talking about people, right? So this house is people. We see this idea continued on in First Peter. If you look at what Peter says in his letter, let's see, First Peter chapter 2, he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, through Jesus Christ. So we see Peter continuing this idea that we are the house of God. We are that. And we are the house that Jesus is over. And thankfully, this, this letter to the Hebrews, this author points out that Christ, the one who is over us, over our house, this house that we're a part of, he is faithful as a son which means that he is faithful then, he's faithful now, and he will be faithful forever. He does not change. Our author also points out that we are this house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So this holding fast, you know, this is important right here. Our author is saying there's a long-term commitment to being in this house. And so, you know, in class, we talked about, does this mean that you can be in the house and then you lose, you lose confidence, you lose hope, and then all of a sudden you're outside the house? Does this point to, you know, there's a, a way that we can lose that salvation? Um, and in our class, when we were talking about this, we ended up deciding as a group, right, that that what he's talking about here is no, our, our perseverance, our holding on and holding fast to that confidence, that's the evidence that we are in the house. That's what he's talking about here. Our perseverance is the evidence of our faith. And remember, this audience, they're struggling in this area. They're under intense persecution, and they're wanting to find ways to kind of scale back to kind of blend in a little bit more and give up part of what's making them different. And he's saying, you've got to press on. That is the sign that you're in it. You cannot give up. And he goes on, verse 7, 
there's a therefore, all right? So he's just finished saying, hold fast the confidence, stay true, keep obeying, right? He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Our author here uh, is moving into his, uh, okay, what are we going to do with this information part of the letter? He's just finished talking about holding fast, staying um, true to Jesus, right? That Jesus is going to be faithful to us. We are going to hold fast and stay faithful to him. He's like, so because of that, listen when the Holy Spirit says, do not harden your hearts. And he has this passage here that he quotes from Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 in your homework, I asked you to go look at it. You know that it's about this, the time of Israel and the Exodus when they're leaving Egypt. So the rebellion when they're in that phase is when they decided not to enter the promised land. Okay. You remember that story? They've been promised you will go to the, you know, the promised land. I will give it to you. It's already decided. Basically they arrive, they send in spies Uh, The spies came back with the little bit of grapes and said, the land is great. God was right, but there's people there and we don't think we should do it. There were 10 spies that said, no, we shouldn't do it. There were two that said, let's go take it. But then the people decided not to go. That was their rebellion. And so this quote here is pointing out that they did not trust God. All right. And this Psalm, you know, goes on and it says like they did not enter the Lord's rest because of their unbelief. And this idea of unbelief is what our author is going to pick up on here. To really understand everything that happened at that time, um, I find it valuable to go back and review that portion of scripture. This is an example of a story that you may have learned as a kid or in youth group when you were older and think, okay, you know it well enough and you don't need to go back and refresh your memory. But I find that even on the most reviewed stories, the most learned stories from my childhood, there are still things to learn and glean when you go back and look at them in their context. So to find where the Lord promises what he's going to give to the people when they arrive at the promised land, turn to Exodus chapter 23. uh, And I'm going to start reading in verse 20. Um, If you if you're sitting down and you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to go find it. If you're driving, you can listen, right? So it says here, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. So we see the Lord is saying, Listen, if there's ever a time that you've listened and obeyed, now is it. Pay attention to what's about to happen here. He goes on uh, in verse 22, it says, But if you obey carefully his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do. 
but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars and pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. Listen to these promises that are coming if they were to obey. He'll take sickness away from among you. It says in verse 26, None shall shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Verse 27, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. But little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. You listen to that, the things that he's promised there, no sickness, no miscarriages, no barren women. What precious promises were involved in this conquest of the land? But then he also says, yeah, there are people in the land, but I've got a plan for that too. And I'm not going to drive them out too early. And you might be thinking, well, I would like for them all to be gone. But what happens when no one's on the land? The wilderness just takes over, right? So in saying that he will take them and move them little by little, drive them away little by little, he's saying when you get to the land, it's going to be ready for you just to come in. It's kind of like when, you, when you're looking at a house, would you rather buy a house that's needing all the work done. You got to gut it. You got to refinish it. There's so much blood, sweat, and tears that you got to put into that house. Or would you rather move into a house that is already perfectly suited for you? And I mean, clearly the answer is I'll take the turnkey property. That would be great. Thank you. This is what the Lord's offering here. He's like, the land's going to be ready for you. This is wonderful news. So there's the promise, right? If you look over in Numbers chapter 13, we're going to see what they do with that. So flip over to Numbers, if you can. Incidentally, this is like right after he has this little meeting with Miriam and Aaron and Moses that we talked about earlier. So they've reached the promised land. They've sent out the spies. It says in chapter 13, verse 25, at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. So I don't know if you noticed or not, but they listed the exact same people that God listed in his promise back in Exodus. I think that's so interesting. It's not even like that should have been a surprise because God had already told them, yeah, there are people there and that's part of the plan. (laughs) But they're like, whoa, there are people there. We can't take it blows my mind. So let's move on. Uh, Chapter 14 of Numbers. It says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. 
Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So this rebellion was not only a decision to not enter the promised land that God has brought them to and instructed them to go and take, but it's also a decision to overthrow the God-ordained leadership that was on that was over them, right? The Lord is not going to let this go. If you look down in Numbers 14, starting in verse 20, we'll see what happens. So as they have been trying to overthrow Moses's leadership, Moses and Aaron fall before the assembly, beg them to listen, and then turn to God and say, God, don't, don't kill them all. (laughs) Save the people. Okay. There's another way we can do this. And the Lord relents. And he says in verse 20, then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice. None of them shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. And then he goes on to say, but Caleb will, right? Because he has a different spirit. It says, verse 25, now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And so he turns then and speaks specifically to Moses and Aaron and says, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. And say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. So if you remember what we just read, what was it they were afraid of? Dying in the wilderness. And they actually said it would be better if we did die in the wilderness rather than go into the promised land and take on these people. So he's saying, you know what? I think that's what will happen. It says, uh, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb and Joshua. But your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring them in and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. So, when you look at these sections of Scripture together, you see the wonderful promises of God. How He had a plan for everything that was going to be confronting the Jewish people as they took on the promised land. You see the people come to that point of acting on their trust in the Lord and they pull back and they do not, they do not trust in what it is that he's told them. And then you see these consequences of the distrust of that unbelief has dire consequences. This is what the author is talking about. 
Living a life in unbelief has dire consequences for the children of God. And so here we come to our second warning. If you recall, when we looked at our first warning back in chapter two, I said, this is the pattern that the author will ramp up. He'll start making points, lots of therefores, and he's getting to stuff and he's really going to it. He makes his big point on what we're supposed to do with the scripture. And then instead of having an encouraging note of like, let's press on, let's keep going. He kind of falls into a big warning. All right. And it's supposed to cause us to pay even more attention to what he's saying. So he's like, because of this, because unbelief, because living in unbelief has dire consequences for God's children. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He's like, this has got to be observed. You've got to be wary of seeds of doubt that crack that um that creep into your heart. In verse 13 he goes on, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So, you see here what is the what's the remedy? for the doubt that we might experience. Because honestly, if I were to ask you in a room full of of other women to raise your hand, if you've ever experienced moments of doubt, did you doubt the meaning of scripture, that God was true to do what he said he will do? Have you ever doubted that, uh, that God will take care of you in times that are uncertain? Have you ever doubted that he can work the, the work that needs to be done in broken marriages and broken families. Have you ever doubted the power of God? I bet all of us would raise our hand and we may not want to admit it because we might verbally say our God is all powerful. Our God can do anything. But we know that in our lives, when it comes down to it, it's very hard to turn some of these things over to him and to trust him to work in his way. We so often want to take control, but living in that unbelief of not surrendering these parts of our lives to God, that's the same thing as the children of Israel, right? So what's the remedy? What do we do in those moments? Because we all have them. Our author tells us here, we open up to each other and we encourage each other. So there's two, two parts to that. One is it says here to exhort one another every day. So that's on the part of us putting ourselves in the lives of our brothers and sisters in the church, right? To not be content with shallow relationships, but get involved, right? Get involved in other people's lives so that you can be that encouragement. But there's also responsibility on the part of the person experiencing doubt. And if you're in the house and you're having those moments, don't hide them away Don't keep them hidden thinking no one will understand. No one will be able to help me or it's wrong that I'm experiencing these moments of doubt. Because as we see in scripture, the beginning of sin, it starts in that moment of doubt, right? If you recall what happened in the Garden of Eden, the serpent approached Eve and did he just say, hey, Eve, take the fruit. It's going to taste great. No, it was a question that began that seed of doubt. Did God really say you'll die? Is that what 
is that what he really meant? You know, that moment of doubt, that seed grew and it grew into an act of rebellion. So we have to be very careful because those moments of doubt can grow into something far more serious. All right. I found this quote as I was studying for this week that said, unbelief is not an ability to understand, but an unwillingness to trust. It is the will, not the intelligence that is involved. Do you grasp that? That our moments of unbelief, all right, it's really a question of are you willing to trust? And it's an everyday decision. So we're encouraged here to exhort one another every day. Every day. We cannot give up on that. As long as we are committed to Christ, it has to be an everyday battle we face on our own, in our own lives, but also with other people. All right. So he goes on in verse 15. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then he goes on. He has a series of questions here. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So with that line there of they were disobedient, you might want to say, well, they were disobedient and that they didn't take the promised land. That was the sin. But really, he goes on to say in that last line, their sin was unbelief. We have to be cautious of those moments of doubt. We're going to stop there today at the end of chapter 3. Our author is going to continue on building on this idea of rest. Um, We're going to study that more in chapter 4. And then we're going to move on talking more about Jesus as our high priest But I want to point out one more thing from this chapter before we go, because now that we've had our second warning, I want you to begin to see this pattern that I told you would start coming out where the warnings grow in more seriousness. If you recall, our first warning was to pay close attention to what we have heard so that you don't drift away from the word, right? And that drifting away from the word has this idea of like kind of a slow, a slow thing happening. But then we see our second warning to be wary of an unbelieving heart. And really that that whole passage there about um, starting in verse 7 through 15 or so, 14, I guess, is really about doubting the word of God, right? As we drift away from the word, we'll begin to experience doubts about the word. And as we pointed out here, there are serious repercussions for God's children as they choose to live in unbelief, doubting the word of God. It's a serious thing to call God a liar, and he doesn't take it lightly. As we move on and we see our third, fourth, and fifth warnings, pay attention to this because we're going to see even more dire consequences begin to come from what happens as we drift away from the message of Christ. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you again for the clarity of your word, Lord. And I know there are parts sometimes that can cause us confusion, but we know that the things you speak plainly about, Lord, 
are very important. And these are the main things. And here we can see how important it is that we trust you, that we trust you with what we say. We trust you also by how we live, Lord. And I just pray for the women in this class that, that you identify areas in our lives that maybe we are keeping from you. Maybe there are things that we are in a way living in unbelief in. We're unsure that you're able to handle this. We're unwilling to trust you with that part of our life, God. And I pray that as you work in our hearts and open our eyes to what those areas might be, that instead of hardening our hearts and believing the lie of sin that we can do it, that instead we turn it over to you with glad hearts, knowing that you are our brother, that Jesus our high priest is our brother and he understands and he's wanting to take that from us, Lord. I pray that as we study your word, God, that the Holy Spirit will just illumine its meaning to us, Lord, and excite us to learn more about you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.